From KLCC Media, this is the Oregon Grapevine. I'm Barbara Dellenbach. The Oregon Grapevine highlights fresh-pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. Michael Fockery is a professor at the University of Oregon School of Law, the director of the Food Resiliency Project, and the special rapporteur on the right to food for the United Nations. Thank you so much for being on the Oregon Grapevine. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did, and it's such a pleasure to be on the show with you, Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to start right off with the fact that you are at the law school, and one of your places of interest and concentration is food. Why? Where's food law in the world? I mean, if you just think about your everyday life and food, food connects every aspect of our life. It's not just about feeding ourselves. It has to do with land. It has to do with, do you have enough money to buy food for your family? It has to do with your health. It has to do with pleasure. It has to do with how we connect with our families. We connect with our past. So, I mean, it's almost trite to say, but food really is everything. And once you start thinking about who made your food, where did your food come from, who's cooking your food, who are you feeding, who's feeding you, you start to see the world in a very practical, straightforward sort of way. It's complicated. Um, But again, the most important part I find is food is a pleasure. It's how we celebrate in such an easy way. Go home for dinner, make a meal, invite your neighbors over, feed your family, eat alone and just use a recipe that reminds you of your parents or your grandparents. And it's just immediate connection and pleasure. So that's where I started in terms of when I started my work is I thought life is too short. short. I might as well have a good time and find a way to talk to anybody about what I'm working on. So it doesn't matter how technical or legal or complicated. If someone asks me, what do you work on? And I say food, I know guaranteed that's going to lead to a super interesting conversation that I won't anticipate. So it'll always keep me learning that way by, by focusing on food. Even when you then say you're actually at the law school. That's the part I sort of sneak in afterwards. And so the law part, again, I mean, the challenge with law is also laws all in all parts of our life, whether we like it or not. But the challenge from a legal research perspective is to how to understand how all the different laws are interconnected. And often because scholars and researchers and experts, we tend to focus and specialize. So maybe someone is a criminal law person and someone is a family law person. And food forces me to see how it all connects as a system. So my, my expertise is commercial law. It's uh, international trade. Um, but of course, then I had to learn human rights law. I had to learn about land use. I had to learn about the farm bill. You have to learn about national stuff and international stuff. And I'm just sort of over the years, just building and connecting and telling how everything's, uh, that story of how everything's interconnected. And then if you just look at the challenges people face uh, in everyday life, sort of like how things are regulated, what's legal, what's illegal, um, what's, who gets to decide what's safe food and what's unsafe food. Um, those are questions that just pop up for everybody. And occasionally you'll see, you'll hear lawsuits of someone who ate tainted lettuce or they drank something they weren't supposed to and then where do they go in the legal system to try to get recourse? Exactly right. Like the fact that it's interesting to me. um, So when people think of food law, they usually start thinking about food safety and that's a good place to start. And it's interesting to me is, well, why is the food unsafe in the first place, right? 
if I grow something in my garden, it's a cucumber, let's say, and then I wash it off and then I eat it, it should be fine for all intents and purposes. And let's broaden out a bit. Let's say there's a farmer in town who's local and they have their reputation. It's They're going to do their best to not poison their customers, right? Like their reputation and the people's health is on the line. It's because what we have in the United States is is a national food system that's geared towards industrial systems where the food production is treated like a factory input output calories products marketing and that's relatively recent and so the the food safety laws are designed to deal with that that industrial food system sort of it's a it's a system that treats food like a product of a factory and then the food safety laws come in after the fact to try and clean up the mess and a lot of people are asking you know for, if you look at our local food systems our regional food systems those food safety laws actually make it harder. Uh, you know, the example I often give in Oregon is raw milk. You know, raw milk falls into a gray zone in terms of food and food safety. Raw milk can be really lethal. And in the early 20th century, it led to deaths of babies. But, uh, you know, if you have a direct relationship with a farmer and some people really enjoy raw milk for various reasons, the question is, well, should we be able to buy raw milk directly from the farmer? In Oregon, it's a gray area. Every state deals with that question. And, you know, to drink raw milk or not drink raw milk, there's, that's a choice. And it's, again, it's very cultural and social, and it, it's often connected to other things. But what I like about focusing on food, again, it just focuses on that relationship with people. What about the idea of food deserts and the fact that here we in Oregon, we have many people have access to farmer's markets or we have access to food that's there. We can go to the store and there's grocery stores more or less in a lot of places, although I think in Springfield, they have less farmer's markets as an example. How does that work in terms of your the work you do? Yeah, I mean, the question, the issue of food deserts, I mean, I'll take a step back. It touches on the question of hunger. You know, why do, why do we have people who are hungry in our community? Whether it's here in Eugene or Lane County, but broadly, even the whole world. So for the last 60 years, whenever there's hunger and whenever there's famine, it's never because there's no not enough food. It's always a problem of access to food, which means that the problem is always political. Who has power? Who's controlling food? Who decides where food is sold and, and who gets access to it? So when we talk about access to food, I mean, so the idea of food deserts is that, you know, do people have access to good, fresh food within some sort of reasonable proximity to their home? And I think, I mean, that's a good way to start, but I mean, it, but it raises more uh, profound issues, which is in terms of who has time? You can have a store, a supermarket maybe that is nearby, but if you're working two jobs and you're barely making ends meet, maybe you still don't even have the time to get there. Or how do you get there? I always bring it back to the issue of hunger. And what I like about living in Lane County is we, many people know that we have a very, we live in a very rich, a rich valley. We have a lot of food around us and it, it can be solved. I think that's the thing. Hunger can be addressed. We can have a community where no one goes hungry um, without having to address every single socioeconomic issue. So access to food is something that's within our reach to deal with. I'd like to move to the Food Resiliency Project and what that is. Yeah, I mean, this is a project, I think, yeah, it's 10 years old now. We're coming up to its 10th anniversary, um, which makes me feel old because I still feel like I'm learning a lot. And the original idea, it came from the students at the law school. Ten years ago, the students at the law school were really interested in food, 
both in terms of just the eating of it and canning and sharing recipes and and just coming together uh, around meals and also the politics around it power and who has power and how law structures the power dynamics in our food system and my work at 10 years ago was very internationally focused and because of the students i just followed their lead and sort of we so the food resiliency project we created it to teach each other to learn because it's so complicated to teach each other myself as a faculty them as students the ideas we all bring our experiences and our knowledge let's use this project to ask find the right question and try to answer those questions with the aim of then engaging with the community with then learning from our community and with our community so the idea then is to create research that serves the community so it's not that we have a client and we give them a legal opinion but we asked we talked to farmers and beekeepers and we're all engaged in our day-to-day life and we keep thinking what type of research would really help everyone clarify certain things so one project we were going to do right before the pandemic and the pandemic interrupted was exactly on raw milk which is what's that legal landscape look like if i'm a consumer if i want to be able to buy and drink raw milk what am i getting myself into and how do we help producers of raw milk know what they're getting themselves into just to clarify things and to publish it widely so that was the main purpose of 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 the project was to learn together uh within the law school and then to engage with the community and does that project go beyond Oregon, beyond the community, to perhaps other law schools or out? Yeah, I mean, we very quickly connected to other law schools in the country um, because food was, in the last 10 years, has become a, a hot topic within law schools, but just within society, even before the pandemic. I mean, there was the food crisis of 2006, 2007, which almost seems like the warm-up to the current food crisis. We thought, remember, there was that financial crisis of 2008 as well. That's when food became sort of really came back onto the political agenda in the United States, but internationally as well. Um, so we're well connected, and I'm really proud to say that a lot of the students that work on the Food Resiliency Project here at the law school at the University of Oregon go on to work and connect with these other clinics in other universities and other law schools and, and, and sort of are engaged in social movements with, um, with nonprofit organizations. So with 10 years, we have sort of a long group of, of alumni, if you will, that have come out of it. But then now we're shifting focus. Um, I mean, it's not official yet. We're still sort of thinking through, but I think we're going to sort of change the name of the project to the Food Sovereignty Project. And that's a whole nother idea. But that's the main point there is connecting now to the global movements that are happening. And food sovereignty is the idea that really puts power at front and center on how we think and talk about things. And the food sovereignty movement is 25 years old. It's an international movement that really comes from small farmers, from workers, from indigenous peoples, the people that are identifying as peasants, sort of reaffirming the identity of the peasant. And from from people in, in cities, from poor families, working families, saying too much power in our food system has been handed over to corporations. And we want to reclaim that power within our food system. We want to decide what's good food. We want to decide what food do we grow in our community to as a relationship with the land. It's not just about... Did I grow enough food? Of course, we have to grow enough food, but it's about how we eat and what we grow is our direct relationship with uh, with with nature. Um, and so, by calling our our this now the food sovereignty project, it's sort of bringing more legal analysis to help these movements and to connect Lane County to these global movements more explicitly. 
how does this relate and food relate and all of this to this job that you have with the United Nations? Yeah, I mean, it's a job. It's unpaid. It's independent. So, it, but it's full time, especially in the midst of a food crisis. So, let me. I started it in 2020. So, the you know, we were all in lockdown in March 2020. May 2020, the UN says you're now the leading right to food expert for the entire United Nations systems system. And by the way, there's a food crisis, and we want your answer on everything. And I'm a parent of a young child. Go. A UN Special Rapporteur, broadly, what that, it's just a fancy term for an independent expert. And before you get kind of into this specific one, yeah. there are others. There are others. There are over 40 other mandates. My mandate is food. There's the Special Rapporteur on health, water, freedom of expression, uh, right of assembly, freedom of religion, violence against women. It goes. The list goes on and on. And so the governments of the world, they elect us. And so I went online, filled out a form, hit send, and through some mysterious, weird process, <laughs> the governments of the world voted and picked me to focus on food. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if it's a burden or a privilege or both at this stage. Um, so the way I describe the job is it's my job to be the eyes, ears, and good conscience of the UN system on all matters regarding hunger, famine, and malnutrition. Do they fund you? I mean, it's not paid, but are, is there a funding way of helping you out? Is there staff or travel or any of those things? I'm lucky I got a good staff based in Geneva. So it's two people um, based at the Human Rights Council, uh, the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva. They pay for the bare minimum of my travel. I have certain mandatory duties that I need to do. And then the rest is sort of through whatever I can piece together, I can figure out, I can sort of hustle, um, ask favors from friends and colleagues to help out with the research. And a lot of it is just learning and talking to people. Um, yeah. And then what happens with this information? Do you have meetings that you then go and, and present it to the, the, the members of the UN? Yeah. So the, the basic requirements is I write two reports a year. I can pick any topic. I can pick any theme I want. That's the power that I have. And then I present it to the world's governments, once in Geneva and once in New York. New York is the General Assembly. General Assembly represents every single country of the world. And the Human Rights Council is the major, sort of a regional representation of the governments of the world where they focus entirely on the human rights. And so the power that I have is I force countries to address the topics and questions that I raise. So I'm working now on a report on climate change. So I, I can get a response on the record. I create a record sort of what do the world's governments have to say after I've presented what I think is the leading cutting edge research. What are the perspectives from communities from all over the world? So I do these big consultations with uh, communities from all over the world one of the advantages of now post-pandemic is we're all used to Zoom and online things for better or for worse. So I've, I, I'm able to travel less and sort of bring all these perspectives and I put them forward in these reports. And these reports are considered sort of the leading authoritative interpretations of the right to food on a particular topic. So the first thing is, yes, I present them to governments, but then they continue. They're used in courts in government proceedings. So I also present to legislators, to parliaments, to Congress, to uh, heads of state, but also to activists. 
And these reports carry the authority of the UN, as, but still, I'm independent. And sort of it just points, the way I try to do it is point the best way forward. Now, what they decide to do, that's on them. That's politics. Are you, as you do this work, optimistic about kind of the state of, I guess, food in general or just where it's going or specifics? You know, I get that question a lot. Am I optimistic? And I don't know. To be honest, it really is day by day. And here's the honest answer. I'm generally, I've seen a lot of pain and anguish, not through this job, but, you know, just life is a struggle. And if you pay attention, if you just pay attention to everyday life, you see everyone's just trying to do their best. Life is hard, but it's also delightful. And so optimistic, pessimistic, I, I don't think I think in those terms anymore. What choice do we have? I wake up in the morning. I'm lucky that I'm breathing. I have to decide what to do with my time. And so for me, this, this position is a privilege because I get to learn from everybody and I get to share that. So there's a sense of this is the impact. I, this is, you know, in my brief time uh, in the world, this is the best I can offer, you know, to the world. And if things get worse or better, you know, I'm doing what I can. My conscience is clear. In terms of a specific, maybe a legal case or a, a food item or a, something that you and the Food Resiliency Committee have seen and done, is there a project that you that you look at and that you have experienced, not that you necessarily hold up as the, the light of all things, but that really you realize that it has made an impact in a really interesting way? Oh, yes, for sure. Um, school meals. School meals. If any... If, you know, if, if anyone was to ask me, let's pick one policy, just one thing. And again, there's no magic bullet. There's no one answer solves anything. But if you, if I was a policymaker or a decision maker, school meals, it worked in the pandemic. If we feed all our children, no questions asked, make food free, good food free for all our children available at school, it's transformative. And I see this in Lane County, in, our, in the 4J system, rather. The 4J system still has meals for all children. And I'm seeing that effect because if you feed the kids in our community, families are better off. They're peace of mind. They're, they're, they're psychologically better off, not just financially. We all benefit, even if you don't have kids. If we're feeding our children, then everyone is stronger. Then what makes it even more transformative is if we saw this in the pandemic, keep feeding our kids even if classes aren't open. Schools aren't just places of education, they're institutions of care. We've got good people working in our schools, and they have a good relationship with our kids. Feed them throughout the year. Some places do that. We did that in the pandemic. And then if you really want to go for it, then the idea of help schools purchase their ingredients as locally as possible. I saw this in Brazil. This is what they did in Brazil. This is how they actually eliminated hunger in Brazil and created a very vibrant food system. This is from 10 years ago under a previous governments. But, and the current government uh, is doing a good job in Brazil. They told schools, okay, we're going to help you financially and logistically purchase a certain percentage of your ingredients from local indigenous uh, farmers and farmers that are committed to biodiversity and organic food and whatever. So what that does is it connects our schools to our local food system. We're now basically supporting a local food system, uh, and we're feeding our kids good food from within our community. 
we've now just not only fed our kids, but we've now supported our local producers. And we've created a supply chain. That's what felt, you know, what worked in the pandemic, not giant supply chains, but local supply chains. So it's now resilient as well. And just to back up a second, I'm assuming that in terms of the school meals, the policy has changed from just people who can't afford it, Title IX or whatever, to opening it up to everybody. That's what happened in the pandemic. And in, our, in the 4J system, they've kept it to open to everybody. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure where they got the funding or, or, or maybe it's just my kid's particular school. But I think it's, it's a great thing um, to be able to just feed all kids no questions asked. It can be easy for people who are comfortable to not really think about genetically modified food or access to food and justice and patents of food and and that sorts of things. It's it's not necessarily a comfortable topic. Is there there a way to say, no, actually, we we need to be doing this not just because of these huge issues, but because in your own mente, in your own place, it matters? Yeah, yeah, to bring it to really one's own sense of self. So take the idea of genetically modified organisms. You know, this was technology that was really introduced in the 80s, in the late 80s. And what happened was the government approved it way too quickly without doing enough research at the time. They just trusted the, the, the corporations um, that were promoting this. And so that created a huge unease and, and mistrust from people. The main worry people had is if I eat something that is genetically modified? Will this affect my body? And there was no clear science either way on that, but the government said, it's fine unless proven otherwise, which was kind of backwards. Finally, finally, over decades, we have some research which shows if you eat genetically modified organisms just on a basic, like you ate something that is GMO into your body, you're probably going to be fine. But... If we understand our health is not just within our skin, our health is inherently connected to the environment, it raises a different concern. My concern with genetically modified organisms is twofold. One, it creates homogeneity. It means that what they do is they, they make the, gene, the genes of these plants as uniform as possible because that creates economic efficiency. But it also allow, um, um, and if you have such a homogeneous uh, gene pool, you're less resilient to the changes, to climate change. You need a diverse gene pool. You need the mishmash and the complexity of life to adapt to things we don't even know is coming. And whatever you know is in the gene pool will respond accordingly. And those that are engaged in genetically modifying organisms, they know that they need biodiversity to draw from. So... GMOs, first and foremost, they limit biodiversity. And second, often uh, they're modified to be able to withstand pesticide. And so with GMOs comes increased use of pesticides. We can grow enough food to feed everybody without pesticides. People are going to disagree with me, and I, I know that debate, but just for the sake of argument, we can grow without pesticides. So if you're eating genetically modified organisms, it's part of a food system that is forcing us to rely more and more on pesticides. So if we think of our health more in terms of our relationship with nature and the environment, that's where my concerns uh, start to arise. We had that debate here in Oregon over can a county decide whether they're GMO-free or not. Um, And that was a big, you know, that was about maybe five, six, seven years ago now. 
And uh, counties wanted to decide for themselves. And unfortunately, the state decided that um, they're just going to say, counties, you can't decide for yourself. What inspires you to do this work? Oh, I ask myself that every day. Um, I asked my parents, where do I get this drive from? Why am I so eager to engage in these struggles? And to, why am I so loud? And why do I always want to argue with everything and everyone? And I think they said it since I was young. And I think since I was young, what my parents said is, if I thought something was unfair, I didn't let it go. Um, so I think I was just born with a sense of justice or injustice and no sense of shame. I am shameless. And so I'm willing to make a mess of things and see what happens. Thank you so much, Michael Fakhri, for coming in and talking with me today. Thank you, Barbara. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to KLCC Media's The Oregon Grapevine, fresh pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live.